0: James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, we began
1: last time that I spoke to look at this concluding portion of the letter that James sent to various groups of Jewish Christians who were in a time of suffering and persecution. And we said that one of his main concerns was to just present to them what authentic faith would be like in that in their situations that they were in we said that this little phrase above all that he begins with in verse 12 does not just introduce that verse but it really applies to the entire section this final section of the letter in other words he was saying here that i want to present to you some some primary things some things of primary importance things I want to emphasize now as I conclude this letter. That's what it—that's what we're dealing with here in verses 12 through 20. In verse 12, James deals with the Christian speech, which is something he has mentioned quite often in this letter. Here he's dealing with the subject of swearing or making oaths, but we saw that the real emphasis here has to do with honesty in our speech, being straightforward, clear, and honest. Our yes should be yes and our no, no. We should not need to make oaths in order to convince people to believe our words. We should always speak as under the eye of God. It's all, we're always, in a sense, making an oath because we're under the eye of God. And so that's what James is talking about here. Uh, He goes on then, he's talking about speech. He goes on from the wrong use of speech, do not swear, to a primary area of the right use of speech, which is prayer. Seems to me that in this section we're looking at here, he actually deals with three different kinds of prayer. First of all, individual prayer in verse 13 and then calling for the elders to pray for you in verse 14 and 15, and then praying for one another in verse 16. So he says, first of all, that Christians should be individuals of prayer in all situations. We should pray when we're suffering. We should praise when things are going well. Whether we're up or down, we should be praying. We get the word, the English word psalm, from this word where he says, here, uh, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. In the Greek, that would be where we get our word psalm. Are you encouraged? And he's saying, Well, if you are, then use your voice to sing praises to God. We need to be careful about allowing times of. Uh, Cheerfulness or times when we're happy to make us compl- complacent. We need to be careful about that. And somehow pray less when things are going well. James says, no, pray just as much. Keep on praying if things are going well or if things aren't going well. Keep on praying. The biblical instruction is pray in all situations. If things are going well, praise God. If not, bring whatever's going on in your life to Him. Some form of calling upon God, then prayer, praise, supplication, thanksgiving, intercession is appropriate speech in every situation. Christians should be turning to the Lord in prayer in whatever circumstances of life sorrow, suffering, health, happiness, or sickness. It's the right kind of speech in all situations and all of the full range of things that God would bring into our lives. And he says, I think it's interesting, he, he says this is for all of us, any of us, any true believer, not just certain advanced Christians. He emphasizes, uh, is anyone, is anyone, is anyone. He says it three times in this section. Not just for certain Christians, this is for all of us, the importance of prayer. One writer said, the habit of prayer should be and indeed is one of the most obvious features which differentiates a Christian from other people. So, in concluding this letter then, James wants to emphasize that prayer should be a regular part of our lifestyle. That's verse 13. From there, next he goes from that general exhortation to pray to a specific situation. Is anyone among you sick? See, he's going down to a very specific thing now. Is any of you sick? Unlike the first two situations mentioned in 13, where the believer is told to pray for himself, here the believer is told to call for the elders to pray over him. I think it's most likely that the sick one has already prayed himself. He's already brought his situation to the Lord before he gets to the point of calling for the elders. It seems that the situation being described involves a person that's quite sick, so sick that the elders have to come to this person, who's at this point probably bedridden, and pray over the sick one. Now, I'm not saying you necessarily have to be bedridden, but I think calling for the elders involves something more than a headache or a (laughs) cold. There are a couple of other things that I think are important to note concerning this thing of calling for the elders. The fact that the sick person calls is an expression of faith. It's not like this is just all dependent upon the faith of the elders. The fact that this person would call for the elders is in itself an expression of faith. And the fact that the elders are the ones called is an expression of submission and unity in the church. You wouldn't do that if you weren't uh, looking to this person, these elders, as someone who you considered uh, you being under that, under as a uh, sheep and a shepherd, and you wouldn't do it if there wasn't a sense of unity between you and that, the person you're calling to come pray for you. So it's an expression of faith. It's also an expression of submission and unity. Also note there's no indication of some specialized spiritual gifts here, like the gifts of uh, healing that that Paul writes about in his letters. James envisions a spiritual power available to the church and exercised through the elders. This is not at all to diminish the importance of personal prayer by each of us, but this is obviously a special time of prayer for the sick person because in addition to prayer, they are to be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. So this is a special thing here. Well, we need to deal with that subject. Why does James specify that there should be this anointing with oil in the name of the Lord? I think there are a number of reasons for this. First of all, oil was widely used in the ancient world as both a skin conditioner and as a medicine. Remember, Jesus said that when you fast, you should not neglect the appearance of your face in order to be seen fasting by men. Rather, you sh- rather you should anoint your head and wash your face. <clears throat> the Psalms speaks of making, uh, speaks of oil, making the face to shine. <clears throat> More importantly, oil was used medicinally. I want to just look up one verse on this. There's a lot we could look at, but if you just turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. Excuse me, Isaiah chapter 1, verse (coughs) 6. Now this is talking about uh, Israel when they were in bad shape spiritually, and he makes it into a... a, uh, comparison of being sick physically and uh, so in verse well why don't we start with verse five where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the soul of the soul of the foot even to the head there is nothing sound in it only bruises welts and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. So that it was a common thing for a wound to be softened with oil. I mean, so we're just, I'm just establishing that oil was used medicinally uh, in, uh, in the Scriptures. You might remember when the, uh, in the account there of the Good Samaritan, when the robbers had left that man beaten and robbed in the ditch, that the, the good Samaritan, the man that came along and helped him, uh, bandaged up his wounds, and it says he poured in oil and wine. So again, the medicinal use of oil. In light of this, some have suggested that James is telling the elders to come to the bedside of the sick person with both spiritual and natural help. Use both prayer and medicine together to heal this person now i think that's possible but i doubt if that's really why james specified anointing with oil oil the reason i say that is because oil was only used for certain types of medical persons medical situations and here james says is anyone sick so it's not like you could just anoint with oil for everything So I don't think he's talking, I don't think he's thinking particularly of a medicinal use here. Besides that, anyone could anoint another person with oil for medical purposes. But this was to be done, what was to be done here was specifically to be done by the elders of the church. So I think the action of anointing with oil was symbolic. It symbolized this person was being set apart especially for healing in the name of the Lord. It's not that the oil heals in any way. This wasn't some special holy oil. They had some special holy oil in the Old Testament. They used it to anoint all kinds of things, like even the tent of meeting they would anoint with the holy oil. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a symbolic meaning. Meaning that this person is set aside for healing in the name of the Lord. In Mark 6.13, we see the use of anointing oil within the time of Jesus' public ministry. Let me just read it to you here. You don't need to turn to it, but when Jesus sent out the twelve, it says, and they went out preaching that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healed them so this was something that uh, was recognized in some situations as being the right thing even here with the twelve that were sent out by jesus initially but it's good it's I think important to remember that in most of the stories of healing by jesus and the disciples there's no mention of oil and james emphasis here is certainly on the prayer of faith and the name of the Lord rather than any power in the oil. So I think it's symbolic. So in verse 15, we're told that prayer offered in faith will restore the sick one, the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be, will be forgiven him. So this sounds like a pretty straightforward statement that God will always heal a person that the elders pray for in faith, doesn't it? If anyone is sick, let him call for the elders. Let them pray over, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered. Now, I, I think we, it's good to look at the footnote on verse 15 if you have the, the same little footnote here. The actual literal here is the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. I'll bring out why I think that's important here in a little bit, but it's the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. Is it true that the Bible teaches that if you call for the elders, if you're sick, call for the elders, they pray in faith, you will be healed every time? Is that what the Bible teaches? To answer that, I want to say a few things concerning divine healing or, more properly, miraculous healing. It's better to call what we're looking at miraculous healing rather than divine healing because all healing that is beneficial to people is divine healing. It's God who puts into the human body remarkable healing abilities all those immune systems and blood cells that fight disease he's put them there he's also granted the human mind the ability to develop many healing methods and medicines in fact i think that's probably part of what comes under the heading here when james says every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes down from above coming down from the father of lights he's given he's given medicines he's given wisdom to doctors and surgeons so medicine and doctors that help heal people are gifts from god and i think that we can say when you go to a doctor and and you get some help some medicine or something that he does that's that's still divine healing it came from god Uh, i read that inscribed on the school of medicine in paris are the words of a huguenot physician which uh, he said, I dress the wound, but God heals. So if we get any help from a doctor or medicine, just praise God for it. It's divine healing. But miraculous healing belongs to a different category than that. Miraculous healings are supernatural demonstrations of God's kingdom done without normal natural means of healing. The way Jesus and the apostles healed without medical or surgical means. For instance, like when Jesus healed the servant's ear that Peter cut off. You remember, right, when they took him in the garden? Peter swung, the, swung his sword and cut the servant's ear off. Jesus touched it and healed it. That's divine, miraculous. It's divine, but it's more than that, it's miraculous healing. Uh, that type of healing is immediate and complete, without delay and without ambiguity. By that I mean even hostile witnesses had to admit a notable miracle was being done in many situations. Uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 4, after healing the beggar who, who everybody knew had been uh, lame all his life, lame from birth, even his, even Jesus' enemies had to admit there was a notable miracle that had taken place and we're going to have to do something about this. We're going to have to put a stop to this. <clears throat> so, I want to preface my remarks by saying that this is not an area of teaching that I feel very confident in. But I believe if we will humbly approach this subject of miraculous healing with a desire... To to deal honestly with God's Word, and also learn what we can from church history, the experience of Christians, we can come to some sane and sound conclusions here. So, just dealing humbly with the Word of God and what we know. When we read church history, and also various commentaries and writings on this subject of divine healing, we find out that there is a wide diversity of opinion on this subject. That diversity goes all the way from saying that miraculous healings virtually stopped after the time of the apostles. They just, you know, this is not the age of miracles anymore. To the opinion that miraculous healings are always available to those in Christ. And there are many Christians who hold views somewhere between these two extremes and are unsure about what the Bible really does teach as I present what I hope is a balanced biblical position on this subject, there are two things I don't want to do. The first is, I don't want to foster any kind of unbiblical expectation, causing people to believe something that is really not biblical. On the other hand, I don't want to foster any unbelief in God's Word, causing people to doubt what God actually wants us to believe about this. In other words, I don't want to raise any false hopes or to stifle any truly biblical-based hope. As with many things in the Bible, Satan seeks to push people to unbiblical extremes in order to bring doubt on God's Word. I think this has happened in the area of miraculous healing. Johnny Erickson Tata, who I'll quote a number of times in this message because she knows what she's talking about. If you don't know who she is, she was a, a young girl that, when she was 18, was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident. Well, she says that one of the things that seems to be a common element in those who take extreme positions on divine healing is a lack of humility she writes on the one hand you have people telling God what he must do and on the other hand you have people telling God what he can't do who are we to tell God what he can and can't do in today's world he can do as he likes he is God at times he is willing to heal immediately and he will perform a miracle that modern medicine cannot begin to explain. At other times, however, for reasons we cannot always fathom, he is not willing to heal a particular disease, reverse the course of an illness, or cancel a particular disability. So as we're here this morning, may God grant us humility that He would keep us from the extremes and just make us able to learn from Him in this area. We're told in the Old Testament in Psalm 25, 9, He teaches the humble His way. If we want to learn about anything from God, it takes humility. I think you could almost say that He teaches the teachable. If, you, if you're teachable, if you really want to know, God will teach you. One of the first things that we should do when we come to a verse that's hard to understand, like this verse we're dealing with here, is to deal with it in the light of the things we do understand. Deal with the things you don't understand in the light of the things that you do understand. We must read this verse in the context of the great truths of the Bible. One of the primary teachings that should come to mind is the fact that we live in a fallen world. All creation, including our bodies, have been subjected to decay and corruption and futility because of sin. Physical disease psychological dysfunction social disorder all find their origin in sin You might say it this way all creation is out of whack and that includes the plants and the animals and even the germs and the viruses paul said for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now so in one sense, all sickness has its origin in sin because, of, because human suffering stems from the fall of mankind. Adam fell from what God had made him and all of Adam's children experience sickness and will die. The human race has sinned and therefore suffers. By a man came death. In Adam, all die in this fallen world our bodies are sooner or later going to be ruined even if we have the best medical treatment and the most faith-filled prayers you might be thinking well that's a pretty gloomy <laughs> outlook on life i don't really like to hear that well i don't like to hear it either but it's reality and. And the Bible is a very realistic book. But thankfully, that's not the whole story. There is an age coming when we will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Paul tells us that he did not consider the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in in us. He says that our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state, this one that's corruptible, to be like the body of His glory. When will that happen? He tells us in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. And he'll wipe away every tear from the from our eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There should no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. first things have passed away. So how does that apply to our subject here of miraculous healing today? First of all, it tells us that every believer, for every believer, God will eventually heal all their diseases. In Adam all die. That's not the end of the phrase. So also in Christ all shall be made alive. By a man, Adam, came death, but by a man also, Christ, came the resurrection of the dead. In other words, a new body, a diseaseless, non-decayable body. And even in this life right now, we can, as believers, experience something of the powers of the age to come. Because of of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are brought into a community of faith where His power is present to perform miracles in our hearts and lives. Sometimes that includes miraculous healings which are foretaste of the age to come. I say sometimes, but not always, or even commonly. Now I want to quote from an article entitled Christ and Cancer by John Piper. Piper says, Christ purchased our redemption, demonstrated its character, and gave us a foretaste of it. This is a truth badly distorted by many healers of our day. God can and does heal the sick now in answer to our prayers, but not always. The miracle mongers, I thought that was quite a phrase, the miracle mongers of our day who guarantee that Jesus wants you well now and heaps guilt after guilt on the back of God's people, asserting that the only thing between them and healing is unbelief, have failed to understand the nature of God's purposes in this fallen age. They are guilty of trying to force into this age what God has reserved for the next. God does raise some people from the dead. He did in the time of Christ. He did that to illustrate that He has power. And one day, will, uh, that day will come when he'll do that for all people. He healed some people of sickness to illustrate that in his final kingdom, this is what it will be like. No more sickness, no more mourning or crying or pain. Piper goes on to say, the thing that distresses me most about those who say Christians should always be miraculously healed is that they give the impression that the quality of faith can only be measured by whether a miracle of physical healing takes place. Whereas in much of the New Testament, you get the impression that the quality of our faith is reflected in the joy and confidence we maintain in God through suffering. Mm -hmm. The glory of God is manifested when He heals and when He gives a sweet spirit of hope and peace to the person that He does not heal. For that, too, is a miracle of grace. The fact is that even in the days of Jesus and the apostles, God did not always heal. Consider what we're told in the first chapter of Mark. Let's turn to that. Mark chapter 1. We won't read this whole account here, 29 through 38. But what's going on here is Jesus is healing many people, (coughs) coming to people, the whole city gathered at the door, and he healed many, and that's verse 34. He healed many who were ill with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. And Simon and his companions hunted for him, and they found him, said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go somewhere else. Now, isn't that something? Here he has a bunch of people coming to him the next morning who want to be healed and helped. He said, Let's go somewhere else. To the towns nearby, in order that I may preach there also for that is what I came out to do. He didn't, he, he, he didn't heal those that came that next day. He went and said, let's go somewhere else. There were a multitude of sick, blind, and lame people around the pool of Bethesda when Jesus healed one man who had been sick for 38 years. The truth that God is sovereign in who He heals and when He heals actually caused the people of His hometown to be filled with rage. You might remember the situation there. They were all speaking well of Him until He said some things about God being sovereign in whom He helps and whom He doesn't help. He told them about Elisha healing none of the people of Israel and only healed Naaman the Syrian... And that made them so mad that they were, they were ready to take Him out to the brow of the hill and throw Him over. Kill Him. They didn't want to hear this. It was partly because Jesus was saying He doesn't just deal with you Jews. naming the Syrian. But it, it had to do with God being sovereign and who He helps and who He heals and who He doesn't. We're told in the book of Acts that Paul healed a number of people. We're also told that he left his fellow worker, a man named Trophimus, sick and Miletus. That's in 2 Timothy 4.20. So sometimes he healed people, but here he had a fellow worker. He said, I left him sick at Miletus. And he himself prayed three times to be delivered from that thorn in the flesh that he talks about, but was not. We don't know what sort of pain or bodily problem this was, but whatever it was, God revealed to him that he would not be healed of this. Nevertheless, God's grace was sufficient and God's power was shown in Paul's weakness. So, I say, considering all that, it's not necessarily a lack of, necessarily a lack of faith which brings about a lack of healing. This is often what people who say, God always wants you healed, they try to fall back on that. They say, God wants you healed, but you're not believing Him sufficiently. This is really a devastating doctrine for the sick person. For not only are they unhealthy, they are made to think that they are so unbelieving and unspiritual that God won't heal them. Let me give you an example of this from... Johnny Erickson Tata. In the years since her terrible accident when she was paralyzed, she had repeatedly looked to God for healing. She had been prayed for by the elders of her church according to the verses that we're looking at today. It's quite an account that she gives of, of that prayer service and how she was confident that she was going to be healed. And so were the people that were praying for She was anointed with oil just like the, this verse that we're looking at. So she'd prayed, she'd been prayed for. <clears throat> she had even been to a well-known faith healer. It tells about being wheeled in, in a wheelchair into that large meeting. And a few hours later, wheeled out again, confused and disheartened. And I would say most likely, thousands of Christians have prayed for her, since they've learned of her plight, prayed that she might be healed. But still, after 47 years, she's still in that wheelchair. Still not healed. In her book called A Lifetime of Wisdom, she says that she's learned that, quote, no matter how great our faith or fervor in our prayers, there will be times, perhaps many times, when our pleas for health and healing will be answered with no. No but then she says not everyone agrees with that and then she gives this account a couple of years ago i agreed to a guest appearance with a well-known christian television icon after a number of minutes of carefully sharing my views on healing and god's will which is she's saying it's not always god's will to heal the host turned to the camera and said brothers and sisters we shouldn't allow ourselves to be duped by Satan in these matters. Healing is promised in God's Word, and it really boils down to a matter of your faith. Johnny says, by implication, he was telling a national television audience that the reason I sat there beside him in a wheelchair was because I didn't have faith, or at least not enough. Had he never read all the times God specifically tells His followers, even followers with great great faith, to expect to expect hard, hardship? Still, I was stung by these unexpected remarks. I felt my face growing hot with hurt and indignation. It was all I could do to wait for a commercial break before tears flowed from my eyes. And then she says. The man may have a huge ministry and millions of viewers, but he's wrong. God is God, and it is He and He alone who decides who will be healed and who will not. This well-known TV personality is one of those miracle mongers that Piper talked about. He may be a professing Christian, but actually, Johnny has more real faith and in many ways is healthier than him. The b- biblical view of health and well being is something more than just the physical realm, it's multi dimensional. It involves body, soul, and spirit aligning with and living in the truth. From that standpoint, a quadriplegic may be healthier overall than an Olympic athlete or a TV personality. So, what about this matter of faith and healing? Isn't faith often involved in who's healed and who isn't? Of course, the answer to that is yes. If you read the New Testament accounts of healing, you will know that faith is often mentioned as a condition for healing to take place. Let me stress again that this does not mean that every time a person isn't healed, it's because of a defective faith. But faith is often an important factor in healing. Let's just look at a few scriptures here. Matthew chapter 9. verse 22 Jesus turning and seeing her said daughter take courage your faith has made you well and at once the woman was made well so faith involved skip down to verse 28 and after he had come into the house the blind man came up to him and said and, to him and jesus said to them do you believe that i am able to do this they said to him yes lord then he touched their eyes saying be it done to you according to your faith so according to your faith and then, if you would turn over to Matthew 13, we see something of the negative effect of unbelief. Because here's Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, chapter 13 and verse 53. And it came about that after he had finished these parables, he departed from there, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in the synagogues, so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? So he goes on and he talks with uh, the people here. And uh, we're told in verse 58, he did not do many miracles there, because of their unbelief. So unbelief can stifle the work of God and faith is very important in relationship to healing. The passage that we're dealing with here in James, if you turn back to chapter 5 of James, in this passage James tells us that it is the prayer of faith that will restore the sick one so right here again you see faith involved in this area of healing the prayer of faith that will restore the sick one so here it's not so much the faith of the sick person but the faith of the elders that accompanies healing so we need to analyze this a little bit what does it mean When, it's, when we talk about the prayer of faith healing the sick person. Does it mean that it's, a lack, it's the elders' lack of faith that prevents God from healing a sick person? Will healing always take place if elders just can muster up enough faith? I think to answer that, we have to come to some understanding of what this prayer of faith really is. So now we're getting to the heart of what we're looking at here this morning. I think James is referring to prayer which is empowered by a revelation from God in a particular situation. Empowered by a revelation. The kind of faith spoken of here comes by divine revelation. It is a supernatural faith given as a gift. This kind of faith will only be given where God intends to heal. If you, This prayer of faith will raise up the sick and it will only be given when God intends to heal. It is much more than just the fervent emotion of wanting someone healed or even, even believing that God can heal in a particular situation. That's not what we're talking about. It is a God-given insight into what He intends to do which enables a person to pray with absolute confidence. Like Peter, there right after the day of Pentecost, he he goes to that sick person, that lame person. He just says, in the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he was... Absolutely confident, he reached down and picked him up and stood him on his feet. He said, Take up your pellet, get going. Later, Peter says to the amazed people who had uh, viewed this miracle, And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. The faith that comes through Him. So, this prayer of faith is initiated in heaven before it's prayed on earth. Let me... read a couple of quotes here from Douglas Moo who has a commentary on James. He says it this way At times God may grant us insight to see that it is, it is indeed His will to heal and we can pray in the consciousness that we have faith to grasp this promise of God On the other hand perhaps most occasions will be characterized by ignorance on our part concerning God's purpose to heal. We pray sincerely that God would bring healing and with the faith that God can heal. But not knowing the will of God for this specific circumstance, we cannot know whether the faith, whether the faith to tap into God's healing power is present or not. In another place he says, prayer for healing offered in the confidence that God will answer that prayer does, does bring healing but only when it is God's will to heal, will that faith itself, a gift from God, be present. That kind of faith we're talking about here, this prayer of faith, is a gift from God. A special gift in that situation. You can't just will yourself this kind of faith. It's supernatural. It's a sovereign gift from God for situations He deems best. Now, here's a point I think it's worthy to consider. In determining when to grant this kind of faith, God has many, many things, probably an innumerable amount of things to take into account besides the sickness of the individual. See, we, we just think of that individual situation and we want that person healed, and, and it's good that we desire that. But God has an innumerable things to think about in whether to heal or not heal that person. Harry Frost, who has written a book on the subject of miraculous healing, says this Christ has many things to think of in planning for a saint. He must have in mind what is best for the individual. What is the greatest profit in respect to his testimony? What is what is required in his relationship to many other saints, and what is the most what will make what is to make most for God's present and eternal glory? And he will hold resolutely in answering prayer to that course which will bring which will combine in bringing the largest and most enduring good to pass. In other words, God's factoring in a lot more than just, here's a sick person. You might say that He takes all of history and all of creation into account as He determines when and when not to heal, which is more than you and I can do. Now I want to give some examples. Consider David Brainerd, missionary to the Indians in the early days of the American colonies. Though weakened by sickness much of his life, he rode more than 3,000 three uh, yeah, thousand 3, miles on horseback to take the gospel to the Indians in the New England area often struggling with sickness and depression and loneliness, tuberculosis, which at the time was called consumption, finally took him out of his missionary work. He spent the last 19 months of his life in the home of Jonathan Edwards, where he was taken care of by Edwards' 18-year-old daughter, Jerusha. She actually got sick and died shortly after David Brainerd died. She was only 18, he was 29. He died of tuberculosis. She might have died from TB also, from uh, trying to help him. Now what's that show us? Well, it shows us, for one thing, that God sometimes brings sickness and even an early death to His obedient children. By all accounts, she was a very godly young lady and of course Brainerd was a very godly man. The idea that God, <clears throat> the idea that people are blessed with good health in exact proportion as they obey God and suffer poor health in exact proportion as they disobey God is not true to the word of God or experience. <clears throat> but why would God take these two godly young people? After all, David Brainerd's desire was to see more people come to Christ. He's just the last few years of his ministry. You started seeing the real work of God amongst the Indians, and then he falls sick to this tuberculosis and taken out of the ministry. Why, why cut his ministry short when it seemed to have just to begun? Have begun. Well, we can't understand of all God, all of God's reasons for this. But we know that soon after Brainerd's death, Jonathan Edwards published The Life and Diary of David Brainerd, which has had a huge influence on Christians throughout the world, especially many future missionaries like William Carey, Adoniram Judson, and Jim Elliott. They all testify what an effect that book has had on on them. As I said earlier, God takes many things into account when He determines when and when not to heal. The lives of thousands, probably millions of people, have been affected by the short, sickly life of David Brainerd. <coughs> God could get more glory that way than if He had healed him. I mean, that's what we had. I, I think we can assume that. <coughs> John Piper says, Brainerd's life is a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use sick, discouraged, beaten down, lonely, struggling saints who cry to Him night and day to accomplish amazing things for His glory. God deals with His people as He deems best and someday we will see that He knew best when to heal and when not to heal. let me quickly give one more example that would be Fanny Crosby she was blinded at a very early age by a mistake made by a doctor I'm sure many people thought that it would be best if God would restore her sight but he never did at least not until heaven because he had another plan and how to use her life here on earth—a plan that would bless millions of people. She wrote over, is it eight thousand? Wrote over eight thousand songs of praise and worship, and her testimony of faith and trust in trials has continued to bless people through the centuries. God gets glory through different ways in different people's lives. Sometimes through healing, sometimes through not healing. No matter what comes your way, our way, we are to follow Him in faith, trusting that our Heavenly Father will always do what is best. Always. So as James brings this letter to a close, he wants to emphasize, honesty of speech let your yes be yes and your no no and he wants to emphasize prayer prayer in all situations suffering cheerfulness sickness or health well that's all we have time for this morning I know there are many questions that aren't answered here we'll take up this subject again Lord willing in the future the subject of miraculous healing and try to dig, it, dig in more on what these verses actually mean. May God help us all in humility to seek to understand and apply these verses to our lives.